welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello, my name is Panos Vardas. I'm a cardiothoracic surgery resident at Indiana University, and I'm here today with Dr. Vinay Badwar. Gordon Murray Professor and Chairman of the Department of Cardiovascular and Thoracic Surgery and Executive Chair of the Heart and Vascular Institute at West Virginia University. Dr. Badwar holds leadership positions in major scientific societies of our specialty like AATS and STS and serves as a chair at the Society of Thoracic Surgeons Workforce on Career Development. Dr. Badwar, I would like to welcome you today at the TSRA series of podcasts Given your leadership role in career development, I would like to focus our discussion on the first steps of career development for fresh graduates. Many residents who graduate from different programs and pathways are in front of a myriad of questions and concerns about the next steps of this transition. So the first question I would like to ask is, what is your opinion on how to prepare for a smooth and successful transition to cardiothoracic surgery workforce? Well, first, uh, Panos, it's a pleasure to be here with you today and part of this TSRA series. I think what you're doing to help uh, our residents is excellent, uh, and I congratulate all of the TSRA leadership for these types of podcasts. It's one step in the uh, career development education. One of the things I would, I would first uh, state that um, much of what we might discuss today um, will be a focus of the career development initiatives both in the AATS as well as the STS and in the STS annual meeting moving forward we'll be focusing more and more on career development. There are many resources now available to residents and as well as uh, surgeons that are in their first year or two of, of uh, practice to have resources on how one can explore all elements of your career, uh, next steps, whether that be academic or private. So to, to answer your question on how to prepare for a smooth and successful transition to cardiothoracic workforce or your first job, it's, it, there are multiple steps to that. I would say, first, know who you are. Know your work ethic, what you can do, what you can't do, and when to ask questions. No one's infallible. We all uh, are imperfect beings. And knowing it and embracing what aspects of you are excellent and what aspects are imperfect will make you a better surgeon, physician, better human being, and, how you, and it can really optimally take care of your patients. And most importantly, you stay out of trouble, both interpersonally as well as professionally and surgically. So that starts from within. That being said, I think while you're in training or in your last year of training, or which I would hope would be perhaps an advanced fellowship, that start to refine what your skill set would be. And most importantly, not the, just the technical, which hopefully would be you would excel in certain aspects, but also how to judge what to do for a given patient at a given time um, and how to mitigate and avoid risk. That will make you a better physician overall and generate good outcomes. Thank you. 
So, uh, in regards to you just said, what are the most common mistakes residents do during training and how can we avoid them based on your experience and exposure to different levels of learners? So that's an important question. That question, however, no longer, it doesn't just apply to residents, but it can apply to someone in the first years of practice as well. And the answers are the same. The most common mistakes people make are first not being prepared. And if you're not prepared, you don't want to suddenly start to discover things while you're in the middle of an operation or in the middle of a patient interaction. So know your base knowledge know how to approach a certain clinical scenario and know what you don't know. So if you're confronting with a patient with clinical uh, indications in anywhere in thoracic surgery that you're uh, unsure of and you've never seen before, always ask. Biggest mistake is uh, not coming forth and asking the question. The biggest mistake in practice is those that are uh, they want to show their bravado and not their vulnerability because you're a cardiothoracic surgeon. And that puts you in jeopardy and your patient in jeopardy. But you can become better by asking the questions um, and focus on uh, delivering the best care at the best time. Thank you. So obviously we've been involved with recruitment of uh, junior attendings. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and you have vast experience. What are the things you will uh, advise graduating residents uh, as important factors in the recruitment process? Sure, so this is an important thing that uh, these are things that we don't learn in residency training and it's critical for a opening practice. So uh, those are in a few different areas. One is uh, making sure you go to a place that you have mentorship. We've seen time and time and again um, graduating residents or fellows go to a practice where the mentorship ability is suspect and then they falter. The second is um, make sure you're doing things that are passionate to you, not because someone tells you you should go there. So it should be, it, you should feel right to you, otherwise you'll always doubt it. The third is in the contracting process. Um, have some base knowledge of healthcare finances, uh, your own personal finances, and contracting. And the way to do that is um, always have someone that you can go to to ask. Of course, an attorney will be able to help you with your first contract. But most importantly, senior surgeons have been there and done that. They can, in many places, including resources uh, at the career development avenues and the STS and, and AATS, can help advise on that first contract and what to look for, what to avoid, mm -hmm. um, restrictive covenants, for example, or other details which we don't have time to get into. But uh, I would focus on those areas. Perfect. So, doc, Dr. Bodwar, you have a very unique pathway where you started with medical education in Canada and you came to the United States for advanced training in cardiac surgery. Your first job was on a in academic practice at the University of Michigan, then 10 years in private practice in Florida. However, although being a busy private practice, you were able to be extremely productive academically. 
many residents are biased that if you take a job in private practice, you will not be as productive academically as you would if you work, if you work for a major academic institution. Based on your experience, do you have a piece of advice? How can you maximize your scientific opportunities or how to navigate research funding as a junior attending in either setting? So yes, I have had a, a unique but uh, a path that I cherish, frankly, because it's given me the experience uh, to be trained by wonderful people in Canada uh, uh, with technical excellence. And then my time at the University of Michigan with Steve Bowling, Frank Pagani, Michael Deeb, and others. Um, so my first job was at a lecturer level, so it's really a super fellow type of level at University of Michigan, so I wouldn't call that necessarily an academic position, but I did have a lab and I had a, had a research grant. Um, and so the last place in the world I ever thought I would go was private practice in Florida. I always thought it'd be academics all the way, but it was the best thing I ever did because that exposure mm -hmm. allows one to see the elements of practice and and learn how to be successful on your own while also learning about healthcare leadership. Um, I worked very closely with HCA Corporation, which is a large uh, healthcare hospital system um, during that time and uh, involved in the leadership of an entire service line while I remained in private practice. Um, I had wonderful partners in private practice and we grew the practice from six surgeons to the largest in the country at the time of my departure at 20 surgeons. Um, and that uh, learning the business side of medicine was also very fruitful. So when I went from private practice to uh, the University of Pittsburgh, my next step in a leadership position, it was, I was well uh, versed with that. While in any practice, taking advantage of your personal interest in academic or, uh, development and scholarship, and I say the word scholarship because it doesn't necessarily mean you have to do basic research, which is quite difficult in private practice. But clinical research and scholarship in, uh, in research through databases and your own expertise, that anyone can do at any time. It just takes effort. There's no dedicated time in private practice. So you do it on the weekends, on the evenings, and it's got to come from within, not because someone tells you to do it. Mm -hmm. So academic pursuits and scholarship come from you, not from anyone else. Now, seeking out mentors to help you navigate all those, I think, is the secret to success. But it is uh, the, the days where you go to private practice and you, your brain shuts off and you just do surgery all the day long, uh, that's not really true. Those days don't hold. And there's uh, superb technicians in private as well as academic practice and also superb uh, scholars in both domains. Excellent. I'm glad um, we addressed this question for uh, uh, you know, all the residents that are uh, considering private practice and uh, they're investing in, ac in academic uh, enrichment as well. So at the same time, we, we all know that the private practice is a tough market to penetrate successfully. As a fresh graduate, how can you advertise yourself in private practice and what are the key elements to build a solid clinical activity? Soon we develop a needs as fresh graduates, and how soon? Knowing that you have pioneered robotics in cardiac surgery, how did you do this, and what is the key elements to develop a needs which uh, will help you with professional success? 
So uh, that's an important set of questions. Um, I would say first that uh, make sure you get excellent training. Make sure that your training is solid, that you're comfortable, again, within your own skin, that you know what you can do, that you have uh, technical experience to execute well. Regardless of the tool you use, whether that be robotics fellowship or minimally invasive fellowship, the most important thing is making sure you get excellent technical outcomes. That I can't stress more because a bad outcome in cardiac surgery, it, it sets you back but also your, your practice back. More importantly, it's a disservice to your patient. So as opposed to being worried about developing really quickly and doing things, most importantly, if you get a patient, just take superb care with, of them as if they were your family member both preoperatively, interoperatively, and postoperatively. Uh, and I wouldn't worry too much about um, anything flashy or uh, billboards or that kind of stuff. And that's where mentorship comes in. Because when you go to a practice, you need to be surrounded by individuals that you don't have to worry where the next case comes from. Um, you'll have mentors, senior members, that give you cases to get you started and then prop you up in front of referring doctors. That's the pride I take now at my level is to, to help our partners, especially our junior ones, grow and foster. And that mentors see that as their most you know, ardent success, not your own personal uh, development. Um, so be in a situation where you have someone that you can rely on or more than one. Uh, then as you develop, it's the three A's that you've heard, hopefully every resident has heard, you know, being affable, in other words, being cordial and nice, being available, so if someone calls you and texts you about a patient, you call right away, and then uh, being able, so having good technical skills and um, being able to take care of that patient properly uh, with clean, proper execution of every detail, and that's really the secret. As it, as it pertains to a niche, Unless you've had an advanced fellowship in something specific, whether that be, you know, minimally invasive thoracic surgery, uh, congenital surgery, or some form of advanced cardiac surgery, um, try not to force yourself into a niche early. Um, now, if you already define that passion, great. Uh, but start to develop things diligently, purposely, to a, towards a certain goal, and uh, many of these niches rely on uh, expertise along the way. The niche is the end game, not the first. So start to develop towards it and your niche will develop with you. Perfect. Um, after your private practice experience, you were recruited uh, as the director of cardiac surgery at University of Pittsburgh, which is a major academic institution. There you brought another level of scholarship and exposure through a very solid and multifaceted academic work with accelerated national presentations and papers, including many of them uh, presented by your residents. How was this transition? Any advice for junior surgeons who are in private practice and they decide to pursue a job in major academic center, uh, how they can do this successfully? So I had a unique experience. So I, I was... Um I was blessed to have mentors all through my career. And when I was in private practice, uh, I, was, I had very excellent partners 
that also were heavily involved in database research and uh, some basic research uh, elsewhere, but developing collaborators. And that allowed one to excel and uh, still publish in private practice. So when I decided to go back into academic practice, I, uh, I had certain niches already developed, clinical niches, but also administrative um, niche, as well as um, quality-based uh, niche, if you would call it that. And so that sort of three-pronged approach, uh, I was fortunate enough to be supported and apply at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, and allowed us to have significant quality improvement very quickly, and also at the same time brought my background in scholarship to an environment that um, had some opportunity to develop. And so with that, again, it takes some time and effort, and you got to work hard. But we were very successful in being able to present at all of our national meetings and every year consistently. And being, it was a great pleasure to see some of our residents present some work. And that continues today. And so um, that hopefully answers the question of making the transition. As to junior uh, members in private practice that want, go, want to go back uh, into academic practice, I think one needs to decide before you're in your first two years whether you want to be an academic or, or private. Jumping only after a few years uh, may or may not be advised unless it's the right thing for you, unless you think you made a mistake that, well, I don't want to be in private practice, I can't excel in my academic pursuits or interests, I can't grow, I can't develop. Um, and, and usually the reasons for those questions, you've lacked mentorship in that job. Not so much of the practice environment. That would make sense. It's not, it's not, it doesn't matter yeah. the, the, what your surroundings are, it's if you're surrounded by mentors and opportunity to do scholarship. And that can be anywhere. It doesn't have to be in a university setting um, like mine currently at West Virginia University, which is exceedingly supportive. So um, I, I would say choose carefully in your first job. And if you need to choose within your first seven years to make the leap, choose very carefully. But again, make sure you're supported. Excellent. So uh, in the other case that a graduate takes an academic job, one of the main expectations is teaching different level of learners, from students to nursing students to residents and fellows. What would be a smooth and safe way to introduce residents, for example, in the operating room, and should let the residents operate when a, a junior staff is trying to establish clinically himself? And in a case that a complication happens, how to face this early in your career uh, or during the first few months of practice? What's your advice? So those are a few different questions there. So let me address them in order. So um, the most important thing about entering an academic job in your first, say, six months to a year is really, as I've said in previous answers, is to establish yourself internally in your own skin. Know what you're comfortable doing, know what you're comfortable in giving away, and, and hopefully that mentored environment you'll have cases that you're able to be comfortable. For example, if it's a thoracic operation, right? The thoracotomy, the exposure, the dissection of the lobe, um, but you probably don't want to give away encircling the pulmonary artery or vein. In a cardiac operation, 
um, you know, sternotomy, mammary takedown, cannulation. Um, you've probably done those hundreds of times, but you probably don't want to give away the distals, but you can take someone through the proximals. Um, so those types of uh, steps of the operation, which you can compartmentalize so that you still feel confident in everything you do, you maintain quality, yet you can still dedicate yourself to education. But there is no fault, even though we're all dedicated to education, there's no fault when you're a junior faculty if you haven't personally achieved those quality and technical goals set, for, set out by yourself that you don't give away a portion of the case. And, and if you're in a in good environment, I don't think anyone's going to fault you for that because it's about patient safety first and education obviously is a parallel, but it, we all know that it is that patient safety must be the priority. The next question you asked was if complications happen, how to face the unfortunate event. Regardless of what subspecialty you are in cardiothoracic surgery, um, it's inherent to our specialty that uh, complications will occur, um, the worst being, of course, a mortality. Honestly, there's no playbook. There's no lesson plan on how to deal with that. Uh, my only personal advice is how you deal with that uh, is really how you're raised, I think. Um, and it comes from within, you know, um, I would approach that as if this person was a family member and what, the, what they would want to hear. Um, it's okay to say sorry. Uh, I think that's an important step. Um, all, you know, everybody's human. Uh, obviously, you want to make sure that you learn from the experience. First, interacting with the patient and their family, um, you know, being clear and transparent uh, and truthful is very, very important. Um, and also just speaking plainly to them that, hey, this happened, you know, we're sorry it happened, we've looked into this, here's the, the issues, one, two, three, four. Many times it's comorbidities that are dictated, nothing, anything that you could have done differently. It always starts from, if that event happens, now go back and look at it from a quality perspective. Learn from every event. It is never okay to have a mortality. And I want to repeat that. It is never okay to have a mortality. But it's part of our growth and development. And so in your environment you're in, private or otherwise, always be introspective. Not, don't be shaken by it. Learn from it. And how can you prevent that again? And that was where judgment is formed. Yes. It's formed from these complications. Um, as well as what you learn from other mentors and your clinical experience. But when you see that patient again, which you will, mm -hmm. you'll say, I remember this patient and I remember the outcome and here's how I'm going to avoid it next time. That's a very mature way to face this uh, unfortunate event. Uh, lastly, uh, let's shift a little bit gears and talk about societal mentorship and advancement. You have been involved with all the major and prestigious cardiothoracic surgery societies at different levels, and you made your way up. How a junior faculty can get mentorship in regional and national organizations, and how did you do this advancement with your career? So that's a common question that uh, we all get asked, and I have to say I'm, I'm very humbled to be um, in my current roles. Um, the truth is, I, one doesn't covet them, and you shouldn't uh, try to pursue something just for the sake of doing them. But uh, a mentor of mine long ago 
has told me the following, which I'm sure echoes with many other mentors, that in volunteer leadership, of which all of our societies uh, include, um, and it could even apply to research, it can apply to scholarship, it can be applied to um, administrative support. But if anyone asks you to do something, do it but exceed expectations, mm -hmm. both in timeline and, and the deliverable. Um, whether that's uh, a journal review article, whether that's um, an opportunity to do research, if it's an opportunity to serve on a committee, you, you don't want to be sort of a bump on a log. You, know, you don't want to be sitting there and not doing anything and not contributing because the next opportunity only goes to those that um, embrace it. Um, because we don't have a lot of time, right? Life's short. Yeah. You want to partner with people that you know you can trust and rely on, and that goes across anything in life, but particularly in our societies because we have a lot of goals to achieve and those goals are important and um, there's a lot of work to be done and no one pays you for it. Yeah. This is not a job, this is something that you have to do from within again and so if an opportunity comes embrace it and then exceed uh, expectations. Excellent. Uh, I would like to thank you for your um, significant contribution to our series of podcasts and uh, your valuable advice in uh, early uh, career development and all the work you do through the workforce uh, with the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Well, thank you very much.